Did uh, any of you have a chance to read this morning's scripture ahead of time? It, uh, if you did, uh, you know, it, it can be a challenging passage to, to untangle. And there's a couple reasons for that this, this morning particularly. Uh, one is just Paul's rhetorical style in the original Greek is a little complex, but uh, then also uh, losing that hour, uh, I don't think is helping anyone. Um, and so we'll do our best this morning. And as we dig into this text from Romans, I, I want to encourage you to keep in mind that Paul's audience here, he, he's going to be writing to, to, to Jewish people, fellow Jews, and, and, and these, um, this new sect, these Jewish Christians. And, and here, in this passage in Romans, he's, he's arguing that it was Abraham, right, or Abram, from Genesis. He's, he's using this, this father of the Jewish people as his example. He's arguing that, that it was Abraham's faith and not Abraham's works that made him righteous in the eyes of God. Now, to those of you who, who maybe grew up in the church or, or long-time Christians, this, this idea that it is you know, by faith that we are saved and not our works may seem an, an elementary um, kind of point. A professor of biblical studies, Douglas Moo, um, writes that, that four centuries of Protestant theology have, have rendered this, this point, that, that it is by faith that we are saved, mundane. So this past Sunday, just before we dig into the scripture, this past Sunday, Chandler, our director of youth and college ministry, invited me to come and teach our confirmation students. So these are 13 and 14, 15, uh, 13 and 14 year olds. And, and as I was preparing to teach that class this past Sunday, I was digging through a lot of my old confirmation class material and kind of looking it over. And I was reminded of this exam that I would give our confirmation students at the beginning of every semester of classes. So at the outset, I would give them this 10 to 15 question test. And it covered some basic theological concepts, um, some basic spiritual disciplines that really served to me as, as, an, as an assessment tool. I just kind of wanted to know where are they coming from? What do they know? What are they thinking? And every year I would include some form of the question, how is it that we attain salvation? How is it that we attain salvation? And better than 90% of the responses I received could be distilled or summarized into one of these three categories. We attain salvation by being a good person, by being a good Christian, or by believing in God or Jesus. Now, this is informative, not only because it tells us a little bit about what our students are thinking and, and, and where they're coming from, but because our young people's worldviews at that age, 13 and 14, their understanding of, of ethics, of politics, are largely formed and framed by what they hear at home, by what they hear from those around them. It says a lot about us, about what we believe, and about what our lives profess, about our understanding of salvation. Does your answer to that question fall into one of those three categories? How would you have answered 
that question. This morning's text comes from the book of Romans out of the Revised Common Lectionary. It's today's epistle selection. And we're going to read from Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, and then skip ahead to verses 13 through 17. So I invite you to follow along in the Bibles that you've, you've brought from home or to follow along on the screen here. Paul writes, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. And for this reason, it depends on grace that the promise, that depends on faith that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I'd like to consider two points that Paul is making here in this text. First, that the law or works, which, which Paul really uses interchangeably throughout the text, right? Because our, our, our works were really a result of following the law, right? So that our works must rest on faith because any reliance on works for salvation is ultimately a reliance on self. So hear those two again. That our works, they must rest on faith. Because any reliance on works for salvation is a reliance on self. So that first point, that works are intended to rest on faith, uh, that, that order matters here. Right? These, these works, it's, it's so important that they rest on faith and we don't turn that upside down. I love games. Anybody that knows me knows me that I'm a sucker for competition. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife Amy and I right now are in the process of, of working on getting our grocery budget down, but I also, I just love going to the grocery store. And so I will go at the drop of a hat. Like if I just think we should have an ingredient, I'll go get it. It's just an excuse to go to the grocery store. And so Amy, in her wisdom, has turned it into a game. So last Sunday, we're at the grocery store, and she said, okay, Nick, here's a game. Let's see if in this trip, we can get all that we will need so we never have to go back to the store again this week. I was game. I was in it. And I will say we did it, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, did. we won the game this week. 
Um, I love games. And so this, this last Easter, uh, we were coming out of worship, and we drove over to Naples after worship uh, on Easter and, and to see my brother. And so we had lunch together, and, and after lunch, we moved outside into the, around the pool area, and my niece pulled out water balloons. And she began to fill them up, and she had brought them so that we could play kind of like a game like uh, egg toss. Are you familiar with this? You know, kind of the goal of this game is to try and see how far away you can get from your partner while remaining, uh, retaining the integrity of the balloon. Now, this whole entire game is based upon one simple joy. How wonderful it is to watch a water balloon smash on one of your friends, right? <laughs> like, that is what the entire game is based upon. And so after a couple of rounds of this game of, of throwing these balloons back and forth, the gamesman in me thought, if two people in one balloon is good, what about eight people in multiple balloons? It's got to be way better. And so we spread ourselves into a circle and began throwing these water balloons back and forth. And as the game proceeded, we began to come up with different rules, rules about how you got out, rules about how many balloons needed to be in, rules about how you threw the balloons overhand or underhand, right? And, and, and before you knew it, before an hour had passed, we had this elaborate game with varying rules that depended on like odds and even-numbered teams. It was intricate, I will say that. But all of it, all of these rules rested on this singular joy of how awesome it is to watch a water balloon smash in someone's face. It all rests on that. Any rule that we'd come up with that really didn't serve that purpose would have been extraneous. Order matters, right? In teaching confirmation class, we have to teach our students about the polity of the Presbyterian Church, and, and that can be uh, a bit of a, a, a yawner, right? Getting into the book of order and the book of confessions, and, and that can be a tough thing to get through for, for any of us. But the, the singular thing that I want our students to understand about the book of order and the purpose of the book of confessions, these, these rules by which we govern our church, is this, is that they are there in order to minimize contention and in order to maximize our ability to love and to loving service. And that's it. If they are not resting on that foundation that God created us to love God and love neighbor, then they're extraneous. Friends, this order matters. And so this is what Paul wants us to understand here in Romans 4 is that, that our works must rest on a foundation of faith and not the other way around. See, this is the essential point that Paul makes with regards to Abraham, that, that before Abraham is tested, before that, that Abraham believed God. So I want to go back to that really quickly, and, and I'm going to read for you Genesis 15, starting at verse 1, and then you're going to see verse 6 up here in just a moment. But, but listen to this passage from Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. 
He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Hear that promise again. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, this is significant here. Paul wants his Jewish audience to understand that that Abraham's righteousness in the eyes of God came not from what he would come to do, but came from believing that God would do what God said God would do. Do you hear that? Abraham's righteousness in God's sight came not from what Abraham would go on to do, but from simply believing that God would do what God said God would do. See, this is Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, Abraham goes on to be circumcised, and, and that was something that the, the Jewish leaders in that day were really wrapped, there, were really wrapped around. Abraham is, is made righteous before that. Abraham is tested in the binding of Isaac, but Abraham was marked righteous before that. From here forward, all that Abraham does rests on his faith that God will keep his promise. Because any reliance on our own works as opposed to the promise is actually just a reliance on ourselves. Let's go back to this confirmation class question for a moment. How do we attain salvation? Is it by by being a good person or by being a good Christian or by believing in God or in Jesus? See, the first two of those answers are, are based solely upon our own agency as people. Solely upon our own agency as people. Both of those being a good person or, or being a good Christian, they, they, they come down to following a set of rules that are either implicitly understood or explicitly stated, right? It's either by being a good person, which is simply uh, conforming to a set of cultural values that are determined by the culture that we live in. It's, it's arbitrary, right? Good. What is good? Or it's by being a good Christian, right? By following a, a set of principles, perhaps it's the Ten Commandments or, or whatever law you want to pull out of the Bible, but all of it ultimately can be traced back to a form of transactional salvation. It's that if I do this, then God owes me this. We remove grace from the picture. God's free gift of salvation by turning it into a transaction based on our works rather than works based on our faith. Now that third answer, that third answer that we attain salvation by believing in God or Jesus is, seems perhaps to have the most merit, right? That, that maybe it is correct or, or, or most correct, but I would argue that it is the most beguiling 
Tim Keller calls this salvation by faith as a work. Because there is no transfer of trust in believing that God exists. There's no transfer of trust in in believing that Jesus existed or exists. It's simply an assent. There's no transfer of reliance. Now you may sit there and say, Nick, it sounds like you're kind of splitting hairs. But the distinction is, is, is so critical because anything which directs ourselves inward to a reliance on self ultimately leads to dark places. It leads into anxiety, leads to uncertainty, shame, depression. The list goes on. And, and I'm going to come back to and, and kind of address how we get there in just a second. But, but first, just sit in this good news that God saves. God saves. And anything else is antithetical to that gospel message that God saves. And right here, it's right here at this critical juncture, as we understand the position of faith and works and and our need to rely on faith, this is where we begin to understand how works play a part. Because our works, how we live our life, will tell the story about what all of it is founded upon. James writes that that faith without works is dead, and he's right. right? Our, Our works will tell the story about what was at the center, about what it was all founded upon. Annie Duke is one of the great poker players in the world. Annie Duke is one of the top five leading female money winners uh, currently, but she also has a PhD in childhood language development, and she's written a couple of books. And her most recent book is entitled Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And in this book, she, she discusses this concept, this concept really known in the poker world as resulting. Resulting. And, and that is basing your analysis of a decision-making process on the results. Resulting. It's basing an analysis of the decision-making process on the results. So let me give you two quick examples. First, uh, if, if I had a coin, right, a fair coin, a, a heads and a tails, and it's equally weighted so that when I flipped it, it was a 50-50 chance of which side it would land on. If I gave you two-to-one odds on that, it is the right choice to take that game. Because half of the time, it should be tails, and half of the times, it should be heads. Now, let's say that I were to flip the coin 10 times in a row, and every one of them you lost. Does that mean that you made the wrong decision? Does it? No, you didn't. That's exactly right. But resulting, resulting, basing our analysis on the decision-making process, 
and, or excuse me, basing our analysis of the decision-making process, basing that whole analysis on the outcome, those 10 losses in a row, would say, this is the wrong decision. This is the wrong game. I've done this all wrong. You begin to feel anxiety. You begin to feel stress. You begin to question yourself and whether or not you were right to enter into this. Let me give you one more kind of real-life example with a, with a couple more factors, and it gets a little more complex as we begin to think about how this plays into our own lives. If you are driving your car across an intersection and you see a green light, what do you choose to do? You drive through, right? You drive through. Now, now if you were to make it to the other side of the intersection, does that mean that you made the right choice? Maybe yes, maybe no, right? Because if you get in an accident, does it mean you made the right or the wrong choice? Let me ask you this. What, was it luck or skill that contributed to you making it safely across? Let me ask you that. Yes, it, it's both. It's a combination of, of luck and skill. And, and as, we, as we dive into life's circumstances, it gets murkier and murkier because there's hidden information, there's things that, that we can't possibly know. And so as then we a, a, apply this concept of analyzing our decisions by simply looking at the results, we find ourselves in, in troubled waters, friends. As a new parent... You know, we, we, we analyze every decision that we make. You know, when, when, when do we give formula and when do we not? Or, or when are we allowed to give vegetables? And when do we introduce meat? What if, what if, should we not introduce meat? When do we put them on social media? When do we not? And, and, and then down the road, 5, 10, 15 years, if, if there is some failure by our child, does that mean that we made the wrong decisions? Maybe. Maybe not. Right? It's a fallacy to base our analysis on post-decisions on current outcomes. But we do it all the time. We do it with our work. Whether we did or didn't get the promotion, whether we got into the school that we felt like we should have or we didn't, whether our relationships last or they don't. We take those outcomes and we begin to analyze the decisions that we made. And then that analysis projects into the future, into future decisions. And, and, and this is where it gets really sticky. is because then this, this murky analysis, this leads us into unethical business practices. We become so wrapped up with what we believe the outcome ought to be that we'll do whatever it takes to make it what we know it should be. When we live our life grounded in faith that God will do what God says God will do, and rather than live in the murkiness, we come into living in the rhythms of God's grace. And we begin to make decisions based on what we know about who God is and what God does, rather than anything that this world brings us. 
there was this Indian missionary that said that we will either take up the master's cross or we will take up the cross of the world and all that comes with it. Because friends, you and I both know this, is that, is that as Christians, it doesn't mean that a, a, a hardship is over. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. So whether Christian or not, we are going to take up a cross. The question is, will we take up the cross of the master or will we take up the cross of the world? Which cross are you carrying today? Pause. And consider that. Because, friends, the cross of the Master is the only cross that assures us of what is to come when we base our decisions, our life, our works on a faith and the promise that God provides. Then we can know what the cards hold. And it is for this reason that it all depends on faith and that the promise rests on grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for being a God that saves. Lord, as we leave this place, we ask that you would help us to slip into the rhythms of your grace, that we would make decisions based on our understanding of who you are and what you say we will do. Because God, a life like that is free. God, a life like that is free. It's free from the cross of this world because of the cross of your son and the grace provided as a result of his life, death, and resurrection. And all God's people said, amen.